morning everyone welcome to the saturday brunch show with me emma williams on this dark and miserable january morning i hate this month but here's a question for you what do william pitt the elder anthony eden harold Macmillan, david cameron and boris johnson all have in common live from woking this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome. We are here again back after the Christmas break. Masks on, thermals on, ready for a brand new term and a brand new show on Teachers Talk Radio. Now, I'm certain that whatever your subject specialism, uh, you were able to identify that William Pitt the Elder, Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, David Cameron and Boris Johnson all are UK Prime Ministers and perhaps you also know that they are a mere handful of the Prime Ministers who went to Eton as a boy. If you take a look at our country's political history, there an overwhelming majority of our Prime Ministers attended elite private schools. Robert Peel and Winston Churchill both went to Harrow. Neville Chamberlain went to rugby school and a grand total of 20 prime ministers went to Eton. Interestingly, our only two female prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, both attended state grammar schools, breaking through that invisible glass ceiling in more ways than one, and perhaps proving a point that I want to explore in the show that it, it seems to me that while there may be elite private schools for girls in this country, your Benenden's, Rodine's, Cheltenham Ladies College, it does seem to me that they're not cut from quite the same cloth as a place like Eton. And that's just one of the countless ways that makes Eton and its ilk what we might call problematic when it comes to equality. But if you have ever wondered what it's like to teach in one of those elite public schools, then my first guest this morning is one who knows. Sean Lambert has been a teacher for around the same number of years as I have, but unlike myself, he has spent his time teaching in some of elite, uh, England's most elite and pre prestigious schools, including Bellenden, and Eton College. So later in the show, I'm going to be asking him what it's like. So hopefully Sean is listening. So if he could call in whenever he's ready, that would be absolutely wonderful. So from my perspective, I feel very lucky personally to have always worked in the state sector. It wasn't necessarily something that I expected because as regular listeners will know, my subject is classics. And it can be quite difficult to secure 
a state school job as a classics teacher. You certainly need a second subject, no question about it. And that's how I managed to break into the state sector. I got my first job really late. I was literally getting to the point where I was really thinking I'd have to do something else for a year and uh, apply for a teaching job in the following year. But fortunately, it eventually happened. Uh, and uh, yeah, eventually, I I did manage to get a job in June. So I think Sean is messaging me in the chat. So I'm just going to say hi. So hi, Sean, you need to actually press on one of the grey circles to call in. So you're listening to the show. But to be able to speak to me, you want to click on one of the grey circles and and give me a call and I will accept you. So yeah, I got my first job really late and in June, which is scarily late, and it was in a state grammar school. And of course, very few jobs come up at that point because generally speaking, the kind of resignation and application merry-go-round has finished by then. Um, so I really didn't think I was going to get any kind of job. But as it turned out, after numerous interviews in private schools, uh, uh, I actually ended up getting one in a state grammar school. So Sean is saying the grey circles won't connect me. I press them and nothing happens. Hmm, interesting. So Sean, if you've got them on your phone, uh, you def if you're definitely listening on your phone, um, you should be able to, to click in. Um, but obviously, if you're listening on a PC, then it isn't going to work. On an iPad, okay, I've never tried it for an iPad. Uh, it might not work in the same way. I do think it has to be to be on your phone. So you might want to retry connecting like that. Um, so I got my first job in a state grammar school. Uh, and it turned out to be a really good first job for me. I think it was like, the ideal place for me to start with. Um, part of my training had been done in a private school. And again, that's very normal for classics trainees. Um, I had one placement in a state school and one in a private school. And that's usually about all they can manage. There simply aren't enough state school placements to go round, which makes me uh, in a... Uh, state comprehensive, very unusual and uh, very popular for um, trainee placements. Um, so first job in a, a state grammar and that worked out really well for me. And then yet again, um, incredibly last minute, I'd met my husband and was just sort of getting to the point where I thought maybe in the next academic year, I would think about switching jobs. And I say next academic year because it was once again, June. <laughs> um, so I just thought, well, I need to get into the mood, into the into the very concept of looking for jobs. So I promised myself that every Friday I would go into the staff room and take a look at the job section in the TES. These were the days when you actually flipped through the paper. Uh, do you remember those? I believe it's not even published as a paper anymore as of very recently. Might be talking about that later. Um, so I did. I popped into the staff room, having promised myself that I would do so, that I would try and get my head around the fact that I might be moving jobs next year. Opened up the paper. Advert for a teacher of Latin in a state comprehensive 
in exactly the area I wanted to move to and five minutes from the house of my oldest friend. So I thought, well, okay, interesting. This won't be coming up again in a hurry. It was part-time, which I couldn't afford, but being cheeky, I rang up and said, yeah, I can teach English as well. Schools can always use an English teacher, can't they? Um, Also said, look, if I'm too expensive, please don't waste my time because you're two hours away. Um, I only want to come for interview if if you would seriously consider me. What I didn't know at the time is they were desperate. They'd had no applications whatsoever. And then when I turned up on the interview day, there were meant to be two of us and the other applicant did not show up. So it was a tough field. Uh, Funnily enough, I got the job and I've been there for 10 years because it's another really lovely school. So I've been incredibly lucky by, by accident, if I'm totally honest, I've managed to stay in the state sector for my entire career, despite being a Latinist. It's actually quite unusual. And I'm, I'm really thrilled about it. Um, I'm not completely against working in private schools. I don't know how other people feel about that. I know some people feel very strongly uh, allied to the state sector from a political point of view. I maybe don't feel as strongly, but I just prefer to be in the state sector, frankly, for selfish reasons. I It seems to me that you have to commit your time and your emotional energy even more in a private school. And when I say private school, I'm talking about places like boarding schools, that kind of thing. Um, it does seem incredibly tough. You have to commit yourself to the nth degree, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, And it it just sounds really, really tough. So I've got somebody who's joined me. Um, I don't know if it is Sean, um, but if the caller could make themselves known, that would be lovely. Hello. I think it is me. Oh, hello. (laughs) You made it in the end. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I didn't realise that my iPhone doesn't actually take headphones because I only bought it a few weeks ago. Oh, I know they've taken out the little jackpot, yeah, haven't they? Ex- exactly. It's and I don't you have can buy a widget. You can buy a widget that will let you connect. Yeah. Uh, but obviously that was no good to you today. The joys oh. of technology. Oh, I know, I know. Well, welcome and thank you so much for actually managing to find a way to get in. It's a um, pleasure. You probably didn't hear uh, what I was just saying. No, I did. I did. I, I was I was listening to you on my iPad as I was downloading it on my iPhone. Okay, so why don't we start with why I stayed in the state sector? Because I just feel the energy and commitment that you need to give in term time sounds even more extreme. Would you say that's true? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've worked. Well, I I like Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher. I'm a grammar school pupil. So I've, I have experience of the state sector in that respect. And I also taught at Cranbrook School in Kent, which is a, a state-maintained um, grammar school. Mm. Um, I've taught in independent day schools and I've taught in independent boarding schools. And I think um, a day school is more intense during the day, but because boarding schools' days extend longer, they're more about stamina than um, being able to cope with the intensity of a of a shortened day 
So it's, uh, you know, it's the difference between a marathon and a sprint, really. I think that's probably very true, because certainly my school, it, it's very much a sprint. You know, we've got incredibly short lunch breaks. You know, well, we've now got half an hour, which feels like luxury compared to the 20 minutes that we had during the height of the pandemic. Um, but it, it is. And but then you, the, the kids are, are leaving at three. <laughs> um, and so it is very much a, a sprint. But what about the. The, the overnight commitment, the fact that you are responsible for those children 24 hours a day, does that take its toll? Well, when I when I originally started at Eton, I wasn't a housemaster. I was just what they call a normal beak. And um, in that role, you, you tend to do um, one boarding duty per week or per two weeks. And that would be from about 6.30 to 11. Um, so you don't necessarily feel that sense of responsibility as a, a normal member of staff but when you go into a house as a housemaster or as a, a dame which is what they call the matrons there I think you feel it acutely. Mm. So does each house have a, a housemaster and and a, a dame as they yeah. the easy yeah. terminology is, is, bizarre. is bizarre yeah exactly <laughs> there is nothing like a dame um, and <laughs> they are they are formidable women um, and it's and it's interesting looking at the setup because obviously when it when it was designed, I think it was designed on purpose to try and reflect the nuclear family that I think most boys at the time would have come from. So you've got the house master and then you've got the dame who assists him. And when I joined, um, I was told, and I think that you know retrospectively, but even at the time, I felt it was a little bit patronising that the dame was the junior partner in the relationship, and that you know there's all sorts mm-hmm. of. Um, ideas wound up in that about the fact that she's female about the fact that she might not necessarily have a degree and um, some of the dames did have degrees my my dame was a um a nurse by training so she you know she was very highly qualified in her field before she chose to to do the job um yeah so I, and and for for us we would each get a 24 hour period off per week but other than those times um we were on duty and um I guess I was fortunate that the boys very much trusted my dame. So when they woke up in the night or they needed someone, they tended to go to her rather than me. So um, luckily I, I didn't see the the kind of day-to-day or practical difficulties of, of being responsible for children 24-7, but, but she did. Gosh. So would that happen often? Are you talking if just boys were unwell or distressed? Why might yeah. they? Well, I mean, it can, it, it can be, I can remember one boy in particular, um, just really for his first three weeks was quite homesick and needed to go and see, he used to wake up in the night and would go and see her. She would give him a hot chocolate and send him off to bed. Um, and and I, that happened every night for a couple of weeks. Um, Gosh. I also remember my predecessor in the house telling me about a boy who slept walked into his bedroom at about two o'clock in the morning and he he woke up to see this boy looming over him um and 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 after he'd guided him back to his room and um gathered himself went back to bed he, he looked through the notes and there was nothing in his file from his previous school about this sleepwalking parents hadn't said anything and he was yeah, he was pretty um, frustrated because I think, you know, forewarned is forearmed in those circumstances. Mm, gosh. So you mentioned there a boy in his first three weeks finding it really hard. Does, that's one of the things that, again, 
I would really struggle with, if I'm honest. I find the concept of boarding school quite alien. And I think I would really worry about the younger boys, not not the sixth formers, but the younger boys, some of whom were sent away from home for the first time in year seven. But of course, some of them will have been sent at home away from home very young. Yeah, well, Eton starts at year nine. So, and, and that I think uh-huh. that is a significant difference because uh, when I worked at Benenden, where some of the girls did start, well, well at Benenden, the, the size of year seven and eight was generally about half the size of year nine. So there were a significant number of girls boarding in year seven and eight. And we saw a lot, a lot of issues in those year groups because for some girls, they, I think they were, it was too much of a culture shock. They were too young to live quasi independently away from their parents. And I think that, you know, if you take a step back, the whole idea of boarding for the right child in the right situation, it is an amazing opportunity. Um, you've got all the facilities on tap. You've got your peer group that you get on with and you would much rather spend time with than your parents or your siblings. There is a, a wealth of opportunity that children in state day schools and even independent day schools could only dream of. So for the right child with the right motivation, it is an unparalleled opportunity, but it's not for everyone. Um, And I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. And I think it also cuts to the kind of mental health debate we're having a lot in society. Eaton trains you to work bloody hard. Um, that's probably the, the the most important skill that it gives you, that, that sense of stamina and that sense of being independent and being able to um, get things done. And if you want to be prime minister or if you want to be a hedge fund manager or if you want to work in an investment bank or a top law firm, one of these high-octane, really demanding working environments, it is an excellent um, training ground for that. But, you know, we're talking about a very small percentage of the population and if you if you impose that kind of training on most people at some point they would crack under the strain because it is a huge strain yeah I think that's how I feel uh Sam who we're going to hear from towards the end of the show is the um well he's the only boy I've met personally who I felt would be right for it and then got in I've, I've since met one or two others that I suggested could have a go and in fact they they didn't get in obviously it's extremely competitive the sixth form scholarship but the vast majority of young people i would i would hesitate because i think it's such an enormous culture shock and yeah. i think especially for, the, for, the for sixth some formers. children it would be uh, destructive yeah i mean especially for the sixth formers i think you've um one of the things that um you you you, you can only experience by by going there is is that kind of intensity and if the the benefit of joining in year nine is that at least you're all in the same boat and you're all learning together and you're all getting used to that new way of life when you when you come in as a sixth form i mean they don't call them sixth form scholars anymore because the term scholar implied um that you were in the top quarter academically and most of the sixth form scholars that went to Eton were absolutely not in that top quarter um and and therefore carrying that additional burden was was, you know was pretty tricky for them but if you imagine that you're joining a peer group who have had three years of getting used to this intense um experience 
and then you've come from a completely different background, you don't know the language, you've got to be a pretty exceptional individual just to survive, let alone to thrive and reach the top. Uh, and, I, and I know that Eaton are constantly looking at this and it's, it's, it's tricky as well because they want to, they are um, really serious about opening up um, access to, to their education. They are, you know, they are an elite institution, but as Tony Little, the previous head, always said, we are academically elitist, not socially elitist. He wanted Eaton to be needs blind. But the thing that you can't change is the fact that boarding school is a really alien concept to the vast majority of the population. And people just won't consider it because it, it does, it seems anything from desperately cruel all the way to bizarre to most people, I think. Mm. Certainly, Sam speaks about the fact that he really didn't want to try until he decided to just go and have a look, which I persuaded him to do. I said that, you know, part of the process is you go and you stay there for two or three days and mm. I, w- I just want you to experience it. If they offer you a place and you don't want to go, you say no. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's what tipped it for him, actually, when I said, imagine turning down an Eton scholarship, you know, how, how great would that be? It's, and, and, and that's totally in your power. So that persuaded him to at least take a look at it. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's quite a similar process to um, Oxbridge for, for a lot of state school kids that they'll, you, you know, I, I can remember going up there and not being sure about it and um, thinking this isn't for me, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't feel like the right kind of environment for me because, um, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy background I didn't have the studied ease and confidence that all the other students there seem to have. And, and, and then added to that the fact that Oxbridge, like Eton, is, I mean, as well as the buildings and the surroundings being familiar, that kind of intensity is also familiar. They have those short eight-week terms, um, whereas most universities would have 10-week terms when I was there. So it just you know eases the pace a little bit. And, and I also think that it's also interesting that that intensity... Um, creates more mental health problems. I think I'm right in saying that Oxbridge is usually towards the top of, of those kind of tables when they're, mm. you know, when they're published in terms of student welfare and the, the kind of pressures that they're under. So, you know, it's not for everyone. No, no. So if your background wasn't in these kinds of schools yourself, how, how did you end up in a career that took you in that direction? Well, I mean, coming back to what what you were saying in your um, introduction, I I would much rather have taught in a state school, but I was a career changer. So I was working in the city and decided that I wanted to go into teaching when I was 30. And um, a lot of it just came down to money that to, to, to teach in a state school at the time, I had to take a year off and do a PGCE. Um, but I had a mortgage to pay and, you know, other expenses And I I couldn't really afford to do that, whereas um, Abingdon School were happy to train me on the job. And I did two terms there because a similar situation to you. They were were desperate and no one else applied (laughs) for the job. Um, (laughs) Hooray! I'm glad it's not just me. No, we we, we love competing in those fields, don't we? (laughs) He actually, the headmaster of Abingdon phoned me to offer me the job before I'd even left the school. I was halfway down the drive. He was that That's desperate. when you know they're really desperate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I then I taught at St Paul's where I carried on my my training. And it's it's interesting that um, 
the headmaster at St Paul's said he would support me to do a PGCE, but um, I would have to pay half of it because he said he thought it would benefit me more than it would benefit the school. Which, okay. which um, you know, when I look back on that, I, I find that quite incredible. But that was that was that was in when would that have been? Two thousand and four. Uh, I think private schools have become um, better at training their staff now. But yeah, it was, and I, I, I think that was probably a reflection of his own experience because he he had been a pupil at St Paul's and then gone to Cambridge and then come back. And I don't think he had done a PGCE and he'd he'd become high master at St Paul's. So clearly, a PGCE or lack thereof hadn't held him back. Um, but interesting. yeah, yeah, it is very interesting. So I want, and then the other thing that struck me and you'll know this as well as a, as a classicist or a Latin teacher, um, most state schools tend to have quite small classics departments, you know, one person, two people, three, yes. if you're lucky. Um, when I joined St. Paul's, there were seven of us. So you've got that, especially as a new teacher, you've got a peer group to learn from, which I think is really important in your development. And then to have the, the luxury of going somewhere like Eton, where there were 14 classicists when I joined um you know people laughed when I when I, I talk about teaching the bottom a-level Greek set and they were like oh my god you have more than one set it you know it was, it was an amazing experience to be teaching classics where it was firmly in the it was it was firmly in the mainstream um yes I mean I find that absolutely unimaginable I've never reached the dizzy heights of a department of three uh the first school we had there were two of us but we both taught other subjects you yeah know, it wasn't like we were both full-time classicists and and in my current school it's just me yeah yeah well that I in my last school that's where that it was it was just me and then the, the department expanded to one other person and a part-timer and it yeah it's a different world definitely yeah yeah, very, very different. But that's, different you know, that, that was what was driving me. And, and then, of course, when you, you know, when, when you end up at a school like Eton, it's obviously, it's quite hard to give that up. Although I, after 10 years there and five years in a boarding house, I, I was definitely worn out. The, it was always an in-joke there that you'd, you'd look at. When I went into my boarding house, I had, I mean, I don't have very much hair, but the hair I had was dark brown. <laughs> two years later it was gray and it and you know two years after that it was pretty much white and most and most house masters hair goes that way um and and that is, is definitely a a reflection of the you know the stress and the um i guess just the tiredness that seeps in through that 24 7 um responsibility but you know don't feel too sorry for me we got extremely well paid um I mean, the hourly rate wasn't great, but the, but you worked so many hours that you did end up being well paid, and mm. and the conditions that you that you live in that you can supply for your family through the job are are amazing. You know, we had a a, a beautiful flat that had six bedrooms, and um, we had a, a, a cleaner, and the, the gardens were looked after by the college department, and we even had someone come in and cook us dinner four or five times a week. So. What? You know, yeah, we, yeah, we had our own. I wouldn't say personal chef because we shared them, shared him with the boys. But and, and and it sounds really extravagant. But ultimately, if you look at the school day, we you know we finish teaching at six. Then there's uh, tutorials or what we call quiet hour from six fifteen to seven fifteen. Then the boys go for their supper from seven fifteen to seven forty five. And then generally you have a, a prayers or they call it prayers. It's a house meeting at eight o'clock. And then you have a second quiet hour from 8.30 to 9.30. So as a housemaster, you've got half an hour 
to have your dinner while the boys are having their dinner. And obviously, if you've got to prepare it, cook it, clear up, um, that's not going to happen if you're doing it on your own. So they, no. they, they give you help. So it is phenomenally intense. So yeah. we've got we've got somebody calling in at the moment. Um, hello there. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. No, it's Boogie Nights. I've been around for a minute. Uh, I apologize. I'm muted myself. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. So. It is an incredibly intense environment, um, hugely intense. And would you say that it, that that extreme is worth it? I mean, obviously, you mentioned you, you, the terms are very short. Do you mm. think that the the balance um, is less than ideal? Well, I, th- I you can't be generalistic about that, can you? Because everybody has a different um, appetite for hard work. And I think at different stages of their life, they have um, different appetites for hard work. I mean, personally, I feel it was the most rewarding and richest professional experience I've had in my life. But if you ask Mm -hmm. me to go back, I would refuse. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's like a lot of things that you do in life. They're, you know, they are hugely rewarding, but they, you know, they take a lot out of you. You you give a lot to them, but they give a lot back to you. I, I, I learned a huge amount there. Um, professionally and just about me personally, about how how hard I could push myself, what I could achieve, um, and it, you know, I don't, I don't want to liken it to. Like, it is a bit like it's a bit like sport when if, when you play sport at a high level and then you drop down a level, you've got a lot more time on the ball and, and life is just a lot easier because you've you've trained yourself to operate at a at a higher level so when i left eton when i left benenden and then went to work in a state uh, in a in a day school i i you know i felt like i was working part-time it was it was quite bizarre mm-hmm. um, but then you know you get used to that and and now i i enjoy being able to get home at five o'clock and not having to do night duties and saturday school and all of that yeah yeah so something i wanted to ask you about obviously we've we've talked about um the pressures of it and the opportunities that it gives you the thinking about those opportunities am i right in what i said in my introduction that there really is no equivalent to eton and harrow for girls um well it depends how you how you measure that um, in terms of institutions that offer academic excellence, girls' schools are better than boys' schools. If, if you measure it purely in terms of exam results and Oxford Gentry, you know, St Paul's Girls, which has been going a lot for you know fewer years than St Paul's School, which is for boys, um, has better exam results and has had almost um, every year for the last 30 years. And they get more girls into Oxbridge than St Paul's. Um, so I think looking at looking at it via those criteria no but the thing i noticed when i went to benenden um is is around that access piece so one of the problems with girls schools is that they've been going for fewer years they're still quite old you know benenden was um started in the 1920s i think wickham abbey started at the sort of end of the 19th century i think i'm not 100 percent sure and what that means is that they haven't had five, four, three hundred years mm. to um, 
fundraise and acquire assets and develop that capital base and that endowment that allows them to offer the generous bursaries and scholarships that schools like Eton and Harrow can. So when I was at Benenden, I think most people would assume Eton was posher than Benenden, but actually the reverse was true. There, there were many more boys from what you would call, um, I don't know, um, I hate to use the word normal, but, you know, in terms of, in terms of um, family income, closer towards median income than, um, than at Benenden, because Benenden just didn't have the, the history to, to acquire the, the kind of wealth needed to offer those free places or those heavily discounted places. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. So because obviously I'm very conscious that Eton does have a huge scholarship programme and offers you know, summer schools, all sorts of things mm. to support students from outside. Mm. But I've never really thought about the fact that it's about the length of time they've been going and frankly, therefore, just the amount of money that they've got yeah. that can and, enable them to do that. Yeah, because and, and the other thing is, is Eton is a huge school. So um, Eton has 1,300 boys. It's churning out 260 old Etonians every year whereas Benenden will only have 100 girls in each year. You know, when you, we all know that compounding is magic. Mm. And, if, and if you work that out over a, you know, over a lengthy period of time and the amount of, uh, and, you know, without getting into the fact that women are only now just um, reaching equality in terms of, of what they might expect to earn over their lifetimes, then the ability to donate to the school and give back to the school, which is a huge part of that fundraising piece, it's for girls' schools. It's very much in its infancy, whereas for boys' schools, it's a, a, a well, not all boys' schools, but certainly for schools yes. like Eton, it's a it's a well-oiled machine that's been going for a, for a long time, and that's yeah. why they have such a significant endowment. Because something I wanted to ask you was how private schools justify their charitable status, but it sounds to me like Eton can justify it more than others. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. So Eton is a, you know, it's a loaded word. Um, mm. Again, the, the headmaster when I was there always used to talk about Eton is a four-letter word like many others. <laughs> um, and, and I think, and, and I personally, I almost didn't apply for the job because I thought, you know, why would they give me a job? I didn't go to private school. I didn't go to Oxbridge. Um, I only had four years' experience of teaching. Um, so I almost didn't apply, but I did apply and I did get the job and it became very clear to me. I was, I was, you know, I was promoted to head of year. I was promoted to house master. It's, it really is a meritocracy and it, it might have bizarre rituals and language, which do tend to keep people at arm's length and think that it's special and different in a, in a sort of unpleasant way. But, but actually it's, uh, it's a phenomenally meritocratic um, institution. And, um, you know, I never once felt, um, I don't know, I never once felt intimidated once I was there and I got used to it. I, I knew that if I did my job well and I did my best for the, for the boys, that I would be rewarded and, um, you know, respected for, for, for what I was contributing, not from, because of the university I went to or the school I went to or the background that I had. And, and unless you go there, you would never know that. And, and people as diverse as I, mean, I remember Ken Livingstone came to give a talk, and um, 
And I think, you know, we need more of that in society today of people who think they don't have that much in common coming and talking to each other and listening to each other. Mm. Ken Livingstone walked away saying, well, you know, I don't agree with a lot of the things the boys have said to me tonight, but um, we've had a really interesting debate. I feel like I've learned something. They, I hope they feel like they've learned something. And, and you get greater understanding between people that you know, maybe didn't think they had that much in common because I think you know, we all have a lot more in common than we don't. But we forget that a lot today, I think. Wow. Yeah, one of the things the boys talked to me about uh, in the interview I'll play later was the number, I mean, sheer number of outside speakers that Eaton invites in. I mean, mm. it's several a week, isn't it? It's quite phenomenal. Yeah. and, it, and Well, and one of the things that's phenomenal about it is and, you know, I, I have no doubt that having the name Eaton behind you does give you a certain amount of self-confidence. But all those all those speakers are invited by the boys. They're not invited by the school. And I think that's one of the reasons that often these people, I mean, I remember J.K. Rowling saying she was quite surprised to receive, you know, a letter from a 16-year-old saying, you know, we'd really like you to come and talk. This is what we're doing. And she mm. just thought, I'm, you know, I'm intrigued. I want to go and have a look. I She like me, probably thought, you know, Eaton's not the kind of place I would ne necessarily feel an affinity with. But um, you can't help but be impressed by the dynamism and the energy and the sort of intellectual vigour of the, of, of the boys there. It's an exciting place to be. And, and the speakers always enjoy coming. And they can be as, I mean, I, I've had dinner with um, Kevin Sinfield. I don't know if you know who he is. Who was the? I don't know. He's the Leeds Rhinos rugby league captain, and <laughs> okay. um, he he came to talk to the sports society, and you know he's a guy who grew up in Leeds, and um, and he said he wanted to come just because he'd heard so much about it and he wanted to see for it see it for himself, and he you know he was he was blown away by how interested and well informed the boys were about rugby league, which was a game we don't even play at Eton. Mm. So. How was it different shifting to Benenden for you? Uh, well, I think the, the you know the obvious thing is girls versus boys is is very <laughs> different, um, and the location actually was was really different. One of one of the things that does help Eton, both in terms of its success and uh, um, uh, in attracting students. Uh, and also in terms of the experience it gives the students when they get there is its location. It's not like Benenden that is in the middle of nowhere and is just a school, and a, a, quite a few boarding schools are like that. Um, whereas Eton is next to Windsor, so you, the boys cannot avoid dealing with the real world. You know, they have to... Eton school is Eton town. The public are there all the time. So, you know, there's none of that sense of being in the bubble, which was a, a phrase they used at Benenden a lot about, you know, how do we get the girls out of the bubble? Because right. um, it's, you know, it's, not, it, it's not like most of the rest of the world. No, and, and you talk, because of their lack of a uh, historical foundation, there were fewer scholarship girls, yeah. presumably, and therefore, presumably, they're also in a bubble of extreme wealth. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it was, it, yeah, it was... Um, much more obvious at Benenden than it than it was at, at Eton, and I think as well the the few scholarship girls that were there, um, obviously they're um, not diluted in the same way as the the boys at Eton, so they sort of stand out more and are more obvious. Yes, which must be extremely tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
So given all of that, the differences we've talked about, and, we've talked, and I've certainly learned somewhere, I've genuinely never thought about, I've thought a lot about the fact that a place like Eton has this long history, but I've always thought about it purely in the context of, therefore, I don't know, the the confidence that that gives you to know you're coming from this legacy. But of course, mm. it's frankly about the money as well. Um, do you, what's your view on my belief, which is that the only way the world will start to change is when places like Eton start taking girls? Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, like a, like a lot of um, opinions, I think mine, mine have settled over a, a number of years. I, I, I went to, uh, well, I think first of all, I should say um, I, I'm a libertarian and I believe that people should be free to do what they want to do. So, you know, if some people want single-sex schools, I would feel really uncomfortable about banning them. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean I think single-sex schools necessarily are the right way forward and certainly not the right way forward for a, a large number of people. Um, I went to a boys' school which had a sister. So I went to St. Olav's in Orpington and um, Newstead Woods, which is up the road and has just recently become famous because of um, Emma Raducanu, who goes yes. there. We, you know, we, we did concerts with them. We shared school transport. We did the French exchange with them. So we had access to girls as friends and peers. But during the day when we were in lessons, it was just boys. And that really suited me. Um, and I think that was a, you know, it was a kind of good compromise. But um, the more I've taught in different schools and the, uh, the older I get and the, um, I don't know, the, I guess the, the more I've seen the, the, the underbelly of single sex education, I think I'm inclined to agree with you. Okay. I think I think I think Eton would be a better place if they let girls in. Um, but it would but it would be a it would be a really difficult um well, having said that, the so there was a there was a significant change um just before I joined when again to, Tony Little and his predecessor Eric Anderson, I think, started the long term job of removing the ability of older Tonians to put their child's name down at birth. And if you did that, all, all your son had to do was score, I can't remember if it was 50% or 55% at common entrance. So for quite a long time, Eton was um, comprehensive in its intake in terms of ability, but obviously yes. anything but comprehensive in terms of its social intake. Um, and then the school decided to change that and they removed the right to put your son's name down at birth and everyone had to compete equally for places um, to do doing either common entrance or the, the 11 plus test. And that caused a huge outcry amongst the old Etonian community because they, you know, they wanted to send their sons to um, their old school. But of course, their old school had changed. And, and I think that, you know, that that is something that happens a lot in society that when you when you open access more broadly uh, it's a zero-sum game it's at cost to another group of people and, and often they will try to defend their privilege or their right or how you know how their entitlement however they see it and i think you're right that's not you know that's not good for equality in society and if we if they let girls into eating i don't think they're gonna double the size of the school because you know, there just isn't the physical space to do that. They might grow it a little bit, but ultimately, if you let girls in, it's going to be at the expense of a number of boys. Yes. And obviously, that needs careful management and um, 
and it's not something that would happen overnight. But I, you know, I, I can't predict the future. But looking at the direction of travel, I'd be surprised if Eton was all boys at the end of this century. Probably earlier than that. How interesting. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, you said you felt Eton would be a better place if they let girls in. But it's also, is it, if, if you accept that, I mean, it's never going to happen that schools like Eton are banned, um, however loudly some people scream, mm. um, it's not going to happen. And so surely the only way to start driving equality, I and mean, I mentioned our 20 prime ministers that come from Eton, I mean, no, no other school has that kind of record. The only way to, to start moving towards equality is for these old institutions to start welcoming girls and women. Yeah, I think there's, that's definitely a, a compelling point. Um, and, I, you know, if I, if, I, if I was dictator of the country and I was allowed to do exactly what I want, I think I would start pushing Eton towards um, the model that Oxbridge have, have adopted, where they've, you know, they've, they've tried hard to um, open up access to students who haven't had the privileges of, a, of an education like Eton. So, you know, this idea that um, three Bs at um, a rough a rough school that doesn't send many children to university is the equivalent of three A's at Eton, I think is per perfectly reasonable. Um, and if, if Eton could become, so sorry, tracking back, what I'd say is I think Eton is an amazing place and for the right kids, it is a really amazing experience. And if, and if it was adopted as a kind of um, state-sponsored preparatory college for um, high flyers in our country, who wanted to work that hard and were aspiring to those kind of careers, I, I think maybe people would have less of a problem with it. It's that whole idea of, um, um, what do they call it, open access or needs blind access. So ultimately, anyone who wants to go there, they all sit the same test. There's a, there's a bit of um, an assessment of people's backgrounds. And of course, the difficult thing is, is trying to measure potential. But, but ultimately, if anyone genuinely could go there, and the people that can afford to pay the fees pay the fees, and the people that can't afford to pay the fees get the fees paid by the bursaries or some other funding. Um, I think Eton would be less controversial. Yes, you said it was a difficult thing about measuring potential. One of the things that struck me, I, I really, it's quite a few years ago now that I had contact with Eton through helping Sam to apply, and the gentleman who was responsible for helping scholars to apply one of the things that really stayed with me was that he said some of the applicants they get are obviously amazingly academic, already on a trajectory for success, you know, wanting to apply to Oxbridge. And he said some of some of the applications, he just looks at them and thinks, well, what, what can we do for you? We, we've got mm. nothing to offer you. You're already on that trajectory, whereas it, for them it was about finding those boys that they felt they could help to fly yeah i think that, and, and again that's uh you know it's a really tricky judgment call to make isn't it that you but i mean uh, you know there's no right or wrong answer but yeah what, what, why would you take someone from um qe barnet who has got just as good a chance of or you know where i live in reading if someone's at reading boys they've got just as good as good a chance to get into oxbridge and be successful um so yeah, there that 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 is difficult, and you know maybe the answer is a 
um, an expansion of, of grammar schools, but I know that's that's controversial. I, you know, mm. I, I benefited from it. I came from a very modest background, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of them. Um, but it's you know it's politically a, a tricky thing, and, and you take a step back and look at our education system more broadly, and uh, you know I'd, I'd love us to be more like the Germans or the Dutch or the Swiss, where there are different there are different educational pathways. And they are all equally funded and equally valid. And people choose what they're interested in and what they want to do, um, not the course that they think is the elite course or the right one. And it's you know it's a it's a problem I'm facing myself at the moment with my daughter that um, she I think she thinks she ought to go to university because all her friends are going to go to university, but she doesn't like reading. <laughs> and I, <laughs> You know, I've said to her, it, it, going to university is like doing homework for three years. If you don't like it, it's going to be miserable. But because everyone seems to think that's the only way forward, it, it, you know, it's, it's tricky. Well, it's absolutely, I mean, people follow the path that's laid out in front of them, yeah. don't they? And, yeah. and, and that can be, oh, well, obviously you, you, it, you're expected to go to university, but it's important to ask yourself whether you really want to. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, th I think because so many schools are measured on their exam results and then the number of kids that go to university, schools just automatically push kids there with the best of intentions, I'm sure. But especially now with the kind of debts that students will leave with, I think they, you know, they've got to really question whether, whether it's for them. And even, you know, but why do you need to go when you're 18 or 19? Why, why not go to work, see what that's like, and then go later if you really want to the opportunity is always there but i yeah i find it um, um a bit uncomfortable the yeah, rush yeah so we've got um joe hammond calling in who's uh on uh has his show later on and joe you said that at your school you've got a social enterprise is that right yeah, so um, uh, so the, my school is called Liberty Woodland School, and uh, we're we're independent, um, but we run it as a social enterprise. So, although we're an independent school, and although lots of people sadly can't afford it, we have a tech place. But we are very much we're we're very we're very progressive. Like everything we do takes place outdoors, and um, uh, we. We aim to, we, yeah, we, our, our founder, Liana, wanted a school for her own children and she couldn't find anything within the system because just, well, the system is so focused on exams and as, um, as you said, going to um, uh, university places and we don't, we don't measure our kids based on that. We, um, we try and educate our kids to become the best versions of themselves it all starts with their own health and well-being first and then so um we we sort of the way we structure it is we uh as a, if you imagine a tree at the roots of the tree is the personal social um health education so everything that allows them so their their base to meet their base needs and then you've got the core skills in English and maths which is strong and then at the very top you know you've got the uh the creative subject the uh the critical thinking and things like those building blocks to help them be what we call you know 
most likely to succeed in twenty first century. That we're not, mm. never, we're never gonna, we're never gonna measure our children based on their exam results and how many goes to because and our, our parents know that when they when they sign up school, they're delivering on Saturday. Oh, no, that's really good. We, your sound isn't great, Joe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end the call there if that's okay. But thank you so much because I think it is really important um, for us to reflect on the fact that independent schools are incredibly diverse, and it's something that I remind uh, Chris and Sam of later uh, in in the interview that they you really can't be talking about independent schools or private schools or public schools or whatever you want to call them, uh, and sort of talk about them all in the same way because just like state schools there is a, a, an absolutely huge variety um so sean back to you um in i suspect that in your utopia because this is something i asked the boys i suspect that in your utopia eton would always exist am i right yes it would but as i said before i think it would be um the access would be um, yeah, more universal and certainly would include girls. Mm. Do you think that it being special and elite is part of your utopia or would you have all schools working towards being like Eton? Well, I think by definition, um, something can't be elitist if everyone is doing it. Mm. Um, and I, But that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that all schools shouldn't aspire to be as... Um, your previous caller was saying that you know the best version of themselves that they can be um if 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 there was a elite carpentry school that <laughs> created the best woodworkers in the country that would be an amazing thing and if i went there i'd be rubbish i would never get in um but you know i'm good at latin so i was able to find my my niche in that in that um area um who's more used to society you know someone that can do beautiful things with wood or someone that can read Cicero it's you know there, there, there are lots of value judgments to be made there but I I, I think I, we know who's <laughs> well, I'm, I'm running a business at the moment and um, they love the the nurses I work with love the fact that there's a lot of um Latin used in the uh, in medical notes and things and I'm the only person that seems to know what it all means so <laughs> oh, well it's good to know that our Latin does have some use, Some use in yeah. the real world yeah <laughs> oh goodness well i am very conscious that you are needing to go so Soon, yeah thank you so much for the insights that you have offered to us because um, i think that most people genuinely have no idea what it's like to to spend time uh, somewhere like eton no and why would they I think that's very, very true. Why would, why would they? And it, and and like it sounds very interesting. Your previous headmaster was saying that that he seemed very conscious of that. That actually, the very word "eaten" is extremely loaded. Yeah, absolutely. And he was very clear with the boys that they should always make an adjustment for that, and that they should be aware of their privilege, and um, you know, just be careful in the way that they they used it in the world because it, it's it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Uh, and uh, I hope to see you soon. A pleasure. Thanks, Emma. Nice to speak All to right. you. All right. Take Bye. care, Sean. Bye-bye. Well, now 
it's time to hear from two very lovely old Etonians, not very much not the sons of millionaires. But I hope, uh, having listened to my discussion with Sean, um, that those of you who haven't known much about Eton before have maybe had uh, that myth busted for a start, that not everyone who goes to Eton is that wealthy. But the two young men uh, that I interviewed this week entered Eton College aged 16 as sixth form scholars. Let me tell you a little bit about them. The first voice that you'll hear is Sam Collett, who attended the State Comprehensive School where I teach around 10 years ago. And I taught him for both English and Latin back in the days where they made, made me teach English at GCSE. He was an extraordinarily able and hardworking student. And I, perhaps, I think for the first time in my career, found myself wondering whether he might not only be capable of tackling the Eton scholarship, but might also be the sort of students who would thrive in that environment. Sam, and he is comfortable with me telling you this, was classified as a pupil premium student when he was with us. So when he was granted the Eton scholarship, which is means tested, that meant they paid for everything. The fees, which are around 50,000 per annum, the uniform, which is probably about the same, and everything else that he needed to get him through those two years. So Sam made it into Eton and not satisfied just with that, he also encouraged another boy that he knew, one whom I'd never taught, to give it a shot. And his name is Chris Shaw. And Chris very kindly agreed to speak to me as well. So I met with Sam and Chris over Zoom a few days ago and we explored their entry to Eton the challenges that they faced, why it was all worth it, and the thorny question of whether Eton should even exist in the first place. So here they are. First of all, if you could both give me some basic background about why and how you came to be Eton scholars, because obviously that's quite a big deal. I didn't want to apply at all. I really, really didn't want to apply for all of the uh, obvious stereotype reasons that someone my age probably had about people who went to private schools. And I was pretty adamant throughout the entire time that the scholarship application window was open that I wasn't going to apply. And then you gave me a pretty good talking to three days before it closed. And my mum did too. And then I had this panic and I thought, oh, what if, what if I miss it? And I, I kind of realised that this is something I really did want to have a have a crack at not necessarily to go but more to see if I could get in I think that was probably the, the main reason at the start and so I called up with whatever it was two days left to go and ask if if, if, if I posted my application and it arrived a couple of days late would they accept uh, and that's actually why I applied I applied just because I thought I should rather than any other reason and I found myself absolutely gutted when I went for the interview process where you're, you spend three days there because I was panicked that I had been quite flippant about the application process not taking it very seriously I hadn't done any revision and things like that and, and I was properly heartbroken 
after a couple of days there because I fell in love with the place. Absolutely loved it. It's incredible. Uh, and I was worried that I'd done myself a disservice by, by not preparing enough for it. So I, I left feeling pretty rotten, to be honest. Obviously, I did get in. And I can honestly say it was probably the best thing that's happened in, in my life. Uh, it, it was life-changing. It did it did change a lot. And I'm sure we can come on to, on to how that's actually happened. But yeah, I got in almost by accident, I think. And I would encourage people not to take the same view that I did. Everyone should apply if they if they think that they can have a crack at it. So, so Chris, it was seeing Sam go through that process that made you want to apply. Is that right? Yeah. So I think Sam and I became friends around the time you were doing an application to Eton, I think, wasn't it, Sam? And then, uh, yeah, we got talking. And when the application process came around, I think Sam, you're ready at Eton and you kind of came up to me and said oh you should apply and I remember laughing in Sam's face I thought you were, I thought you were joking but you really encouraged me to apply again didn't want to more more because I didn't think I stood a chance of uh, of getting in but I took Sam's advice and I applied and yeah same I'm really really glad that I went it's completely life-changing well, that's, that's amazing to hear because one of the questions I was going to ask you was was it worth it? Because I'm very conscious that it must have been incredibly tough. Sam, you said you fell in love with it when you visited, but actually going there to board and making that shift must have been really hard. Sam, I, I, certainly, obviously, I pushed you into applying. We probably haven't really talked about why I felt it was right for you. From my perspective, I felt that you were extremely talented and I felt that you didn't realize your potential you didn't really have that full view of what you were fully capable of I felt that somewhere like Eton would throw open doors and opportunities to you that you couldn't even imagine you know however however much your teachers were telling you you're really good you could do this you could do that I didn't feel you would take that on board until you went somewhere like that so was I was I right did it open doors for you do you think yeah you're absolutely right you're very kind to say that I think I was just very good at remembering stuff when I was at school it's an important talent yeah yeah it's a good one to be good at I would absolutely agree with that I think I think a very good example of the the way that it's a different sort of school is inviting guest speakers because I when I went to Eton for the first time there was something like five or six guest speakers on that week in the evenings for you to go and see and in my time there I I saw everyone from uh Damien Lewis the actor to um Kevin Peterson the cricketer to Bear Grylls we had people coming in from companies all over the all over the country telling us about their startups and what they were doing and it's because teachers there constantly invited people and students were encouraged also to get involved with inviting these well-known people maybe less known well people who are experts in their fields to come in uh, and give a speech to the to the boys there and that was one of those sort of I guess unknown unknowns I didn't didn't know this sort of stuff existed at schools and I know that there are obviously huge limitations to what can be put on in uh, state comp compared to a boarding school where they have access all the time but that was one of the really big differences for me was the, the ability to just always go to something uh, no matter what I wanted to do that night like there was always something on wow that's amazing what about you Chris what doors do you feel it opened for you I think for me it it just made me more ambitious it really made me realize the power of hard work 
I think at the time I probably wasn't very confident when I when, when I first joined Eton and it really helped me build my confidence and and, and realize just how far hard work can can, can bring you um, and I think that's I've, I've kind of taken that with me since since I left everywhere I've, everywhere I've gone I mean when I first started I, I, don't, I don't know what your experience was like Stan but I found, found it academically quite challenging I found that a lot of the other kids were quite far ahead of me in most of my subjects so, was, so I was a little bit disheartened to begin with and now I felt there was a lot of catching up to do but I did I did eventually catch up I think that's the main thing that I took yeah I'd, I'd agree with you on that Chris as well I, I felt like I was leagues behind everyone else there when I joined and it, it was a bit of a fight to catch up I did get there but it was a bit of a fight I think that the difference for me was that I approached my education as a much more well-rounded individual once I went to Eton uh, they very much encourage you to get stuck into sports you're sort of you're almost required I think to do sports three or four times a week and there's something for everyone because of some medical conditions I can't do a lot of contact sports so they accommodated me for that and I, I really got into my running whilst I was there they encourage you to take part in society so I got stuck in with the environmental society and I think that big change for me was academics matter you know the pure academics of school really is important it's clearly the key thing but shaking this notion that it was the only thing that mattered was what really changed my time at school I think that's really interesting but do you feel you stepped up academically when you shifted to Eton I'll be honest I was always probably sort of top top or towards the top of the class for maths and sciences but the competition you know internal competition which is actively encouraged you know and it's, it's a healthy competition it's a healthy competition with with your fellow classmates at Eton really really drove you and I, I did feel like I needed to step up academically there and Chris is right you know you do start leagues behind and they I remember I had this awesome physics teacher and she talked about the homegrown boys versus the scholars and she she was interested to see how we the sixth form scholars coming in fared against the boys who had always been at Eton and in the first physics test I took, I was bottom of the class. And that meant I sat in the front row. And throughout the year, I was just getting, going better and better and better through the test, which meant I get sat further back in the classroom. It was a, a, a scary system she had. But it definitely did. The, the, there's the healthy competition there that really did help me to sort of step up academically. No, I'd agree. It's an, it's an extremely competitive environment. And even, even the mock exams that they do are called trials. And you're not given like a grade, you're, you're, you're ranked against your classmates, so you're given a ranking. The same as Sam, when I joined, I remember I did my first Spanish grammar test and I got like 16%, which is firmly the bottom of the class. And so I really had to kind of work and, you know, got, got there in the end. But yeah, I think we certainly definitely thrived in the competitive environment. Also, to be clear, when you arrive there, the, the teachers fully understand that you, you've come from a school where you're at school five days a week. And these guys have been at a private school probably for the best part of their lives. Uh, and so it hasn't necessarily been a level, player, a level playing field. The teachers there, they, they really want to see you get up to their level and they really encourage it. And there, there was absolutely no shame in me being bottom of the class. There was only pride and congratulations for me as I fought my way up. Well, that's really good to hear. Because it, it, it does sound, it does sound incredibly tough. And I think it says a lot about both of you that, that you did run with it and thrive, because I, I think it's an enormous challenge. And it's not like I am recommending to lots of boys that I meet uh, that they should go for it, because I think it is incredibly tough. 
for a different kind of student, it could have had the opposite effect. It could have destroyed them. I can't resist asking you, number one, do you think Eton should be made to admit girls? And number two, in your ideal utopian world, would Eton still exist? I think that all schools should be like Eton, so. Okay, Chris? Personally, I think from a standpoint of equality, yes, girls should be admitted to Eton, although it wasn't a very popular idea, I don't think, for reasons I, re I wasn't really sure of. I remember there were quite a few polls put forward in the, in, in the school magazine. It wasn't a particularly popular idea. As to whether schools like Eton should exist, I don't think they should, um, of course schools that, that that exclusive shouldn't exist. I mean, already you're counting out half of the population, be it only being a boys' school. If those opportunities are widened and broadened to, to, to everybody, uh, I think, yeah, definitely it could it, it could have a place in the, in, in the utopia. I think the one thing I would say that I really liked uh, at Eton was this culture of respect for, for being talented and for being good at something. You were encouraged to find something that you were good at find something that you enjoyed whatever it may be uh, and pursue it and become quite good at it and you're really respected for that so for example if you were a boy in the, in the choir you were really well respected for being in the choir and and, and, I, and I genuinely think that that might be one reason why uh, public school boys tend to be you know quite confident and outgoing and extroverted compared to the general population agreed you're taught you're, you're definitely taught not to uh be scared of doing what you love and what you're good at. I think it's probably important to say that you can't view Eton as a normal private school. <laughs> like it, it really isn't. I mean, it is, it is unique. And there are other unique private schools. I do think my view of Eton has changed so much that I now think, and this is obviously such a natural thing to happen, but I just think of it as so normal now. And I think that's an issue. I think it's quite obviously such an issue because it's not. And I and I look back on it now and I forget that it had not one but two chapels. Two chapels. <laughs> it had a it had a golf course. It had a golf course, right? Oh, and I wrote, it had a, yeah, of course. It had yeah. an Olympic rowing leg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously. Yeah, I forget about that one. And that's that's yeah. my it had stopped. a what? An Olympic <laughs> rowing leg. Well, they did, um, it's where they did the the London Olympics yeah. rowing events. So they did it there. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, like, I do sometimes stop in my tracks and forget and then realise that I've forgotten how nuts the whole thing is. It is it's, pretty nuts. It's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. There, there was always a play going on at any one time in one of the two theatres. It was three theatres, Chris, but... Three theatres. Oh. Sorry, when you say a play, do you mean put on by the students or...? Um, yeah, so you had you had house plays, so each house took it in turns to put on a play, and then you had actual theatre societies and groups of students that would put on their, their own plays as well. They're all really high quality, um, and the props and the set, sets are incredible. Yeah, of, of course, of course. And then it comes back to the whole point, it's, it's just not a level playing field. No, no, it's not. And this is what I struggle with. So I think my personal view would be, you're never going to get utopia. That's not possible. So in the real society that we live in, if I come across a student like you that I think could get in, 
would survive and would benefit from it, I think you should go. In my utopia, would Eton exist? Of course it wouldn't. Every place would give you those advantages, not none of them. Uh, well, no, fair enough. So, I, but then I suppose, but then Eton wouldn't be unique, would it? It wouldn't be special. It would just be the standard of education. Which is great. Which would be amazing. Unlikely. Unlikely, but great. <laughs>
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.